Kari, thank you very much for giving up even more time. And I know that you've already agreed that you're going to do a few sessions, um, but I feel it is a must on my part to thank you anyway for each occasion that you come. It's my um, pleasure. <laughs> it's, it's so brilliant that you actually uh, you like it as much as I do, which um, yeah, which is quite a lot. I was slightly uh, apprehensive in the beginning to talk about myself, but you made it very easy, as I said before, and um, I so far enjoyed it, and I'll see what happens. Good. It's uh, for you. It's um, in, in some ways, I guess, it's a trip down memory lane. Um, and for me, it really is uh, an adventure. Um, and, and that's how I will consider it uh, and live it as you tell the story. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think I, my words of introduction can do it justice. So please uh, just yeah, jump in and um, yeah, tell us uh, the next installment, please. As an aside, before I do that, um, mm. I've been dreaming about all these years and I all of a sudden talked about it more than any time before to people who called me so I didn't remember what we talked about <laughs> last time uh, which means I'm really into the whole experience and it's in one way fascinating and in one in another way um, I'm simply very grateful that I did have the experiences that I had, in spite of the fact that some of them were very uh, sad. Um, those I will talk about briefly during this session. But we're still in Texas after my year at Rice University. And before I left Texas for uh, a short vacation with some friends, um, I was my first ever, I was bridesmaid in rural Texas to a college friend of mine, which was quite an experience because I had only uh, seen America from from college angle. So all of a sudden I was, uh, I saw family life and that was very exciting. And shortly after that, I uh, spent a few weeks in Colorado with a friend and his, his family who came from Texas and they had been at the wedding. So um, that was another rural experience in America and it was very, very pleasant. I saw a lot, um, which was kind of stepping stone to my return trip, which started in New York. Um, I stayed with uh, Jewish friends of my parents, and we had a very emotional time because that was the time, 1961, of Eich the Eichmann trial on television. And of course, my friends who had lost their parents at Auschwitz and a brother who had been shot uh, were very, very much involved, and I was trembling along. That was a very, very deep experience that uh, really shook me, but m much more than what happened later when I was on the boat. We were going, the Fulbright students were sent by boat, 
by the Berlin, which was a 10-day trip from New York to Bremerhaven. And before I'd left Colorado, my friend had told me one of his contacts from years back had told him that the American Air Force was flying with live nuclear ammunition over Europe. At that time, we didn't know why, but it was kind of scary. So um, on the boat, we uh, had fun. We, we reminisced among the students uh, of what had happened in the year bef uh, before. And then when I arrived at Bremerhaven, which was on the 14th of August of 1961, um, I realized what had happened, why there had been live ammunition on American planes. The wall had gone up on the 13th of August. So I happened to return back into that period of time, which um, in a way touched me because of having known something frightening before and something happened politically. But afterwards, um, I kind of pushed it all away because it was readjusting to Germany, readjusting to family life and readjusting to studying at the University of Heidelberg. Um, it took about two more years before I got my diploma in uh, translation from the Dolmetscher Institute, the Translators Institute of the University of Heidelberg, with a diploma in English as a major and Spanish as a minor and law as a hard subject, as I would say, um, <coughs> excuse me. So after those years, I kind of recapitulated what had happened during the years before. Um, so it was a time of thinking. It was not a time of doing. I took on a job as a translator for a credit information bureau, Credit Reform. I was in the international uh, office of it in Neuss. And to be honest, it was relatively boring because it was always day by day. It was the same thing. Um, you had to report on what other people told you about the financial aspects of companies or individuals. And you had to rewrite it in a different language. And um, I had to rewrite it into, in German, but the information came in English and Spanish. And when our French uh, translator wasn't there, I had to do that too, because I'd had French in school. And since it was always the same thing, it was relatively easy. I could even do it, uh, part of it in, in Portuguese and Italian. Okay. Uh, so it was, that, that, was, that kept it alive, but the work itself was very, very boring. Um, so after about two years, I said, um, could I do it from home? So it was home office even then. They mm. let me do it from home. I went to Noise once a week and picked up the things I had to translate, and brought them back the next week. And in between, I'd met somebody I later married and therefore had more time for for him, for myself, 
and for my family because working at home, if you do it in a concentrated way, is easier than working in a large office. Um, as I said, those years were not important because of my work. It was important because of my personal life. And Ken and I got married in 66 in December and left for the States in end of 66, arriving on January the 1st or 2nd. I don't quite remember. And we settled in Cincinnati. Um, it was, it was like homecoming. All of a sudden I had a, an American name. I had at that point no uh, problem with the language. I had a, an American accent. I'm some sort of chameleon because I respond to whoever I talk to. And by now, my, my language, my English is a mixture of American English, uh, international English and English English. I did not ever go back to the British English, the la-di-da English that I was taught <laughs> in the beginning. La-di-da. Okay. <laughs> That's what it was called. This oh, is, okay. We had English students uh, at Heidelberg University. And when they heard, to, heard me talk English, they said, la-di-da. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, that is la-di-da. Okay. I, I think I should rename my website, but uh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, so um, those were interesting years. They were emotionally very, very lovely with Ken. So early in uh, 67, I arrived in Cincinnati, where we settled, and uh, Ken was a um, uh, representative of, of a, an aluminum company and was traveling a lot. So I decided um, I'm not just a housewife. I want to do something. So I went to the German department of the University of Cincinnati and asked the chair Guy Stern, whether he had a job for me. And I thought of maybe something at the library or whatever. When he heard that I'd uh, already had a diploma from the University of Heidelberg and what I'd done before where I'd studied, he said, uh, okay, now you are a student of German literature and language. Within 15 minutes, I was signed up at the University of Cincinnati with the help of a German student who guided me through the process. And not only did I have a job as a student, I also had a part-time job as a, a teaching assistant. And as far as teaching was concerned, I was supposed to teach scientific German, which was right up my alley because um, I had loved science and my father was an engineer. So I knew that part of the German language very well. And um, so I said yes and started uh, teaching and studying and living in America as an American, basically, because um, something told me that there was no accent when I was talking uh, American at the time. 
Um, a friend of mine who was born and raised in Delaware came and heard me um, teach that summer. Um, and since summers were so hot in Cincinnati, we had to start at 7.30 because there was no air conditioning. And so all, all the doors were open and I was teaching halfway in German, halfway in English. And he must have stopped by there because uh, half an hour later he said, Garen, you have to tell me, where did you le learn your German? And I started <laughs> laughing. I said, what do you mean? Yeah, your, your German is perfect. And I said, well, then my English is perfect as well. <laughs> um, no, it, I'm, as I said, I'm a chameleon and it changes in terms of uh, diction. But uh, no, that that was uh, kind of a stroke on the on the shoulder. That was uh, that was a compliment, and I I took it as a compliment, and I liked it too. Um, the German department was a, a very busy department. I got thrown into all kinds of aspects of teaching, research, uh, radio, uh, editing, co-editing, uh, what have you. But that was basically not what I wanted to talk about now. I wanted to go into some very sad period in my life because two years after we'd been married, Ken died of a heart attack. I made a decision right away, within seconds, I'm going to stay in the States. I'm not going to go back because I knew my father would um, cover me with, with love and protection and so on. And m my mother, of course, she was very, very, uh, she loved Ken as much as my father did. And she she was in in shock and in pain. So... I said, I'm not going to go back to Germany to stay. I was, I, I left the States with Ken's ashes because he wanted to be buried in Germany where he knew my family and uh, he loved them. So I arrived in Germany with the ashes and stayed there for another two months. Was, can I, can, sorry, yeah. can I ask, was Ken American or was he German? He was American. He was okay. uh, uh, American of English-Irish uh, descent. He came from Kentucky. But he was not, he, he was not the typical Kentucky. His okay. favorite uh, saying was, uh, was the question, uh, do you know whatever, what the best thing that, do you know the best thing that ever came out of Kentucky? And he said, an empty bus. <laughs> uh, that was his Kentucky joke, as a Kentuckian. <laughs> uh, you may want to cut this out, I think. No, we'll keep it in. I, this nice little personal bits are, yeah, I think that's what partially gives it the, an additional element and uh, a dynamism to it. So, okay, yeah. you do what you want. <laughs> But um, so I came back to the States after the bur burial with my mother, who stayed with me for another month or two. 
to make it easier for me to readjust. And in the end, she would have loved to stay. I took her to New York because she had bursitis, couldn't carry uh, any luggage. And when she left through that hall at the airport, the, the, uh, the gangway, she said, don't let them buy you back. She knew why I was in the States and she these these words have given me the backup and the strength to do whatever I thought was right and stay in the States alone without a direct family. I did. Two years later, I had news from Germany that something was wrong with my mother. We didn't know what. And I was lucky as again, as so many times through contacts from the German department to Washington and to a program that looked for American teachers of English for North Rhine-Westphalia. I got into a program that brought me into North Rhine-Westphalia as a, an American English teacher for a North Rhine-Westphalian school. And um, which was ironical in a way. And I was lucky I could choose the school. I had I heard all the options and I chose the school that my brother had uh, graduated from, which was three kilometers away from my home, my parents home, so that I could stay home, take care of my mother and and teach. Uh, the teaching was uh, fun. I loved the students. Um, the teachers were a mixture of good and bad and indifferent. Uh, there were some who were between 40 and 45 who had uh, received their schooling and their university degree during the Nazi period of time, and somehow it reflected in their attitude. I didn't have any or tried not to have too much contact with them. Um, on the other hand, there were some of the age of my father who had been uh, at that school too, um, old school friends of my father's, and they were lovely. They were uh, shortly before retirement. And this way I had I had a system of protection within the school. But um, once the school was out, that school year was over, I fled. I escaped back to America. My mother had died in between and nothing could keep me in, in Germany at that time. I was, I was devastated. I needed to get back to America where I was I knew I had friends, I knew I had the support at the university where I had a job and where I had my life without any uh, impediments from childhood psychosis or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, this this um, not being able to trust after the Second World War kind of had followed me 
not into America. There I was absolutely free of uh, fears or, or restrictions, whatever. But whenever I came back to Germany, I felt, mm, I, do I belong here? Don't I belong here? I, I don't think I do. So I was very, very happy to get back to the States. And, can I, uh, can I yeah. just ask about the, um, yes, because the, the social makeup element is always is fascinating. And um, yeah, I, I think of a, a, like in, I think it's in geology, when you want to study history, you look at the layers and the, you know, sometimes you have a layer of ash where there was perhaps a fire and then earth has grown above it and so on. And, and when I look through sort of generations of people, um, in some ways you can also trace back uh, these kinds of sociological elements through the characteristics and the methodologies of people. Um, and it's fascinating that you take that a similar approach in your appraisal of the people before the war who had studied and learned and begun their their roles as teachers and so on and those who had learned during the war and obviously those thereafter um, and and for you those who had studied under the nazis were forever tainted is that possible to use that word tainted they were tainted if they behaved that way you know, I didn't, I didn't prejudge them. I didn't prejudge that uh, generation of teachers or, or people at all. But when I felt that they were either not truthful, or they had uh, the the Nazi attitude of "we are better than the others," mm-hmm. sorry. Is okay. Uh, so you was basically saying that you didn't prejudge uh, the people who uh... no, but right, I didn't prejudge them. I uh, I watched them very carefully, but when I saw the, these teachers, or some of them, or quite a number of them, uh, without respect for the students, without understanding or wanting to understand the students, and simply stood there with uh, with their fist and one at one point said, you know, uh, we are not allowed to to uh, beat them anymore, but I would love to beat this little boy, 12 years old, to the pulp. That kind of uh, reaction always uh, threw me back. Understandably, yeah. And, I mean, no, yeah. sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I yeah, I take a similar approach uh, to people that I work with. But also when I was a scout leader in, in London, you know, I took a similar approach to the, the kids who were, you know, 12 or 11 or 15. You know, for me, you know, I had to show these people respect to get yes. their respect back. Uh, it didn't matter to me that they were so young. They still had opinions and thoughts and feelings That's and they still absolutely. needed to be respected. Yes. Uh, I had two cla- I had two classes uh, Quarta, which is uh, seventh grade. Okay. I think so. And I had two classes um, um, I think ninth grade. And these were kind of uh, in between fish and flesh, as we say. Okay. Um, they were heavily under. Uh, attacked by their hormones, um, so they were very difficult to to handle, and I didn't want to handle them. 
um, they were used that used to the fact that their teachers stood there as like policemen saying, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that and the other. And I went in there and I said, I'm not your policeman. I come from a different way of teaching. I've taught adults. And um, let's try and see what we can get to together. Um, some other teachers who also taught that class later asked me, how do you get along? And I said, well, they're, they're unruly and so on. I'm, I'm trying. And he then went to the director and said, this class is unruly. Even Mrs. Clark cannot take care of them. Uh, at which point I didn't respond. I didn't go uh, say anything. He got the class. Um, he got a different class. I kept the class. And within weeks, I had their trust and they had mine. Um, and I did it spontaneously, um, not having really thought it through. But we were supposed to have a lecture, meaning outside reading, which we then, which they had to read at home and we discuss at school. And I said, OK, we can do uh, Goethe, we can do uh, whatever you want. We can also do Ian Fleming to Russia with love. <laughs> they, they didn't know what to say. And then all of a sudden, everybody said, yes, 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 we'll, we'll do that. And I got some of the people who had never read an English book that they read throughout the night to read this book. And that broke the ice, absolutely. And then they got very disappointed when I started analyzing that book, saying, you know, here the tension, the sexual ten tension is built up to a point, but it is never released. Here the violent setup is... Uh, is brought to up to the, to a climate a climax which never comes. So um, they were all of a sudden not just reading English; they were also discussing English literature in terms of an analysis. For 15, 16 year olds, that was fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing, is it, when you show people that you are willing to listen, that you are willing to, uh, you know, and hear their thoughts um, and, you know, give them the responsibility to uh, to think for themselves and where that thought can actually lead to some kind of action. They engage so much more than simply being told you do this or you do that. It's absolutely, absolutely. Um, I had contact to some of them years later, and um, it was amazing that those who had started at a very, very low grade had, even after I'd left, had worked themselves up to the highest grades. So, you know, it was, it was like an initia initiation into learning and initiation into English, which was wonderful. Fantastic. But um, as I said, I, the, the situation at the school to me was was uh, very uncomfortable because of 
this mixture of of signals and then there was uh, strange uh, responses when they heard that I was writing a dissertation uh, one teacher the English head teacher came he, he had never contacted me uh, although I was teaching English uh, he had left the message when I came in that um, I wasn't supposed to uh, teach them American English they were absolutely uh, held to talk British English you should have heard his accent <laughs> um, I said okay I can do either and um, I did both in, in parts you know when I saw that it would help I did the American uh, ling lingo mm. the real uh, jargon uh, which they of course knew better than the English but uh, then I gave them fodder with with British English uh, no, it, I had had a wonderful time with with these kids, but the whole situation was kind of strange because this one teacher, who had shown no interest in me other than telling me that I shouldn't teach American English, uh, when he heard that I was writing a dissertation, he came to me and he said, "You know, I'm collecting um, first uh, versions of dissertations. Would you please send me yours when you're in in the states?" You know, the, it it floored me. I would never have thought that anybody would lay themselves so open to uh, criticism. You know, no, I, I was in. He was in charge of my teaching, basically. He had never contacted me. Only when he heard that I was writing a dissertation did he want to have a copy of it. No other interest, what have you. Mm. Well, um, so it was a mixed bag. I had lovely times with my father's uh, uh, friends. But um, as I said, I was very happy when school was out and the next day I was on a plane to America. Well, I mean, your you sort of return to Cincinnati, um, and you know, because this was a different return, wasn't it? So the first time you went there, you were with Ken, um, and the, the second return, time, yes, yes, first, and, the first time was alone to yeah. uh, Texas. Then the second time was with Ken. Yeah. The third time was with my mother, as I said, who. Um, understood why I stayed there and to this day it was you know like a big support system that I could really rely on my own reactions to my life that I was free to do even though I knew how how difficult it was for her after having lost Ken in a way too to lose me as well basically to America. Yeah. So on this on this latest return, then again you were returning no, alone. I was returning af alone after my mother had died and yes. uh, after school was out. Yeah. And and then you stayed in Cincinnati until seventy seven. So this was uh, yes. qu quite a long period. Long period of time. I um, got back 
And uh, first, they helped me by giving me two instruct uh, two uh, assistantships, one teaching and one research assistantship, so I could survive. And what year was, was this? Was this, this was after I came back, seventy three. Seventy three. Okay. Um, with the promise that as soon as one was open, I would get an instructorship. An instructorship paid more, was more independent. I was was a yearly uh, a yearly job, um, and it was the lowest end of the faculty. But it was very much alive because the students related to us instructors more than they did to the professors. We were basically uh, the caretakers of the students. And what was it like with uh, so women instructors uh, or lecturers? Uh, were there many of them? Because the way that you tell the story, it seems as though they were very encouraging, uh, you know, of you pushing you forward, putting you into positions because they could see your your ability and your potential. Was that uh, sort of ubiquitous to you know, with regards to other women, or was that simply a, an isolated case? Um. No, it was not isolated, but there weren't that many women. Uh, there was on the faculty were two women. One later became my doctor mother. Uh, the other one had psychological problems and everybody else had to teach their, her courses. Uh, all the others were men. And some of the men were chauvinists and some were very supportive. Um, so I, I couldn't complain. I was thrown into, I thought, the best positions, more even than the other instructors. I got chances to do things that I otherwise would not have had a chance of trying out. I've temporarily lost you, Karin. I can't okay. hear you. Okay. Oh, now you're back. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, no, it, I, I was not treated... I was not treated uh, better because I was a woman. I was treated better because I had had um, the degree in Germany. Okay. You know, so I, they knew, they knew, uh, or they thought they knew what I could do. They threw me in, into all kinds of things. I had never taught at the university when they told me, you teach uh, scientific German. I went in there and I did it. And apparently I did it well because two years later, they gave me the chance to supervise the three sections that there were. Um, in terms of uh, teaching assistant or the assistants in teaching and the assistants in research, I was linked to the chair of the department um, none of the others were. There were four, three. There were four instructors. I was the only woman. Uh, then we had um, a guest professor from Germany and his wife. And his wife was supposed to teach um, a seminar. And apparently she had never taught before and she was hopeless. Because she didn't know and nobody told her what to do. So I was thrown in there co-teaching 
And within two weeks, um, I was teaching alone, a seminar I hadn't focused on. Um, then came the um, an in international edition of Lessing, Lessing yearbook, uh, studies of Lessing and his time in English and German. Um, we had uh, an editor, we had a co-editor, and I was the the co-edit, I was the second co-editor, and I had to do the final editing of the whole book in English and German, and with comma and and full stop period. Mm -hmm. um, that has stayed with me. I, I can still do it, and I'm still doing it for everybody else, uh, <laughs> editing um, and telling them, you know, where the comma and where the full stop should be. With the proviso, I cannot do this in English. I can only do it in America, English, <laughs> as far as uh, interpunction, uh, punctuation yeah. is concerned. Is it the Harvard system uh, yeah. or some such? Yeah. Now, a side sideline, when I uh, wrote a book on uh, uh, in England for an English publisher and I had written it in America, in American. It was a book on Berlin, which we had, my ex-husband and myself, we had written in German and English. He had, I'd given the, the German to him because every time he had touched it, I had to re-research it. So he was responsible for the German. I was responsible for the English. He never read the page of it in English. Um, I wrote this, of course, because it was a book on Berlin. I, I uh, justified it to myself that I wrote it in American English because it was big city. And big city has a nonchalance in terms of language, in terms of attitudes. Uh, it was closer to New York than it would be to London. You know, in, in England, when you want to call somebody uh, a bloody liar, you say, oh, you're very economical with the truth. Yeah. In New York, you say, you're a damn liar. <laughs> so these things I was I was trying to avoid by doing it in American English. It got into the hand of a, a British London editor for the, the uh, company, for the, for the publishing company. And he changed some something like 2,000 uh, commas and full stops and what have you, and quotation marks. And when I saw that and said, no, no, it's not impossible, it's impossible, he had to redo it. I mean, he had to take them back because he had not realized that uh, it was a different system. And in that sense, it was uh, in the the editing or the co uh, the the co editor of uh, the international lessing yearbook was uh, really really uh, giving me a background which has helped me all my life. Um, another aspect of the these years was I could 
I was responsible for uh, departmental uh, things. I was uh, responsible for the younger students, particularly the women, the young women students, of course. Uh, they called me day and night, and the others did too. We were service, the service uh, uh, element of the department for students. And so many of my students became very close friends. And I was only three years older than they were, or four years. Um, that was that was something I was taught how to deal with people without dealing with them, but listening to them and giving advice without telling them what to do, which is the hardest thing. Mm. Otherwise, advice is, you know, you do this. No, no, you can't. You can't talk to students like this, not eight, whether they're 18 years or when, whether they're 24 years. And I later had students who were in their 60s. We had a, a retired monk who came into German classes and he stayed in my class when he was in, in his 70s. So, you know, we, we had to deal with all kinds of uh, questions and problems and uh, mentalities. And it was good, good education. Mm. Um what else? Um, then friends had told me that they were starting a radio, a radio frequency, um, a non-commercial one. And I think in all of America, there were um, only 10 or 20 that were not commercial or uh, associated with, uh, with organizations. And they came to me and they said, you know, would you do a program on Germany or in German even? We are here in Cincinnati, which is a German town. Um, we want the German element of of the public as well. There were 50,000 German-speaking people still living in Cincinnati of half a million. Well, it's quite a bit, 10%. That's quite a bit, Yes. Cincinnati was was a German town. The the uh, beer industry was Wiedemann and Hudepol, and not far away were vineyards along the Ohio that uh, looked like the Neckar or the Rhine. And one part of Cincinnati was called Over the Rhine. Uh-huh. So um, there was a good reason for for the radio people to. They were young people. They, they uh, were trying out what they could do, and they did a good job with that radio station, um, WAIF. Wave. And were the Germans were the Germans there uh, before the war, or did they move? Or did they, they immigrate they, after the war? They were uh, there from 1845. Okay, so. 1848. You know the the first big rush mm. towards the states when. Um, democracy was was being pressured mm. uh, in Germany. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, the the nineteenth century in itself is an extremely fascinating subject, and uh, yeah, if you want to go into that at some point, then I think we could uh, we could do that too because it is interesting the uh, the development of national identities and political and social movements too. But for the purpose of this Cincinnati thing, um, okay, it's uh, interesting. Such a but still, I mean, ten percent. That's a very high percentage for yes, uh, yes. a non-German yes. city. This is why the, uh, the the university was a city university. And the German department, in terms of the language departments, was the biggest one, of course. Although after uh, during the Second World War and during the First World War, um, they had taken German out of, out of schools and out of uh, the universities mm. because of the wars. As a safety precaution for their yeah. own personnel, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, not safety, but, you know, also repression. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, the Nazi elements in America are still there. Yeah, well, I mean, in many cases, the, the Nazi element in America was there before it was in Germany, but that's a different uh, conversation entirely as well. So. Okay, okay. the belongs and so on and so forth. Yes, <laughs> it was, you know, you had that in England as well. Mm. You had brown skirts, yeah. brown shirts. Yeah, yeah. Black, yes, or, no, they were black shirts, right? Uh, the Mosley yeah. people. Mostly, I I'm not sure about that. What they were called, but I, I'm familiar that the the movements, the um, uh, the, the groups were there and not all of them were sort of low level so a, a lot of them in these countries were rather high level um, yes. and this is perhaps one of the one of the elements which people tend to forget because um, it's not just the gangs that you know carried out the the, the thuggery um, but it was the people that funded them at the top was uh, which is the absolutely. main problem absolutely absolutely no i mean um nazism was perfected in Germany. I don't want to take anything away from the guilt of the German Nazis because uh, the American and the British Nazis did not have the power. They didn't have the, the back up of the society, not the backup of the industry as it was in Germany. So um, I, I can't really compare them in terms of viciousness mm. you know they yeah. are by now they are just as dangerous in all those parts of the world and there it's uh, and they have an international network of which I will uh, to which I will come back later mm. when I talk about the last years in Cincinnati when I was uh, building up a small good institute at the university and oh, I had okay. uh, contact with all the German associations and I was responsible to have the contact with them um, but that's an that's a different story mm. it ties back into what we are talking about right now sure. okay. um, can I also ask the so what these years so in in some cases you were absent from from Cincinnati you'd returned to Germany but in other cases so from 1960 until 1973 you were you'd been in and out of of the USA um, and obviously you your main sort of reflections here have been academic uh, within the educational institution uh, even okay. though 
from 66 through uh, 72, mm. I was in Cincinnati. Okay. So it's that's a span of, of five or six years. And then I was in Germany for a year, teaching and taking care of my mother, and then came back in 63, in 73, and finished my PhD in 75. Mm. And, and in that time, the, you know, the... You can only consider the social uh, situation uh, in the USA as tumultuous, I think, um, in Cincinnati as well. Uh, yes. In 67 and 68, you had the, the Avondale riots. Um, there was a lot going on. I, I know we probably don't want to reflect on that now, but maybe a bit later. But generally speaking, how how much of this were you um, A, aware of and B, affected by? What was happening outside of academia? Um, academia was a, was a kind of protected area, of course. But we had black friends who were right in the middle of it. And their friends were killed. And uh, we, we were never without close contact with what was happening outside. Um, the, were, there meet, were there committee meetings that you took part in? Were, were there occasions where you, not quite a, like a, not a, quite an underground, but I mean, you know, if you were involved with these people, uh, I can only imagine that you came together to understand, to nurse, to assist we in friends. some way. We were friends. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have any formal contacts of any kind, but we talked all the time. You know, it was, uh, there were... We were loose groups. I was not an activist in that sense. First of all, um, as a native German, I, they could have always thrown me out if I was doing something that they didn't like. Um, I couldn't become an American citizen after my husband died. Um, no, differently. When I came into the States, it would have taken me five years to become an American citizen. Ken died two years after we arrived, so I was reassessed and had to wait another five years. In those years, I was out of the States for one year when I was teaching and my mother was ill, so I came back and would still have to wait five years for an American passport, and then I said, not with me. I'll keep my American, my German passport, which put me in a position that there were things I couldn't do. And um, so I was always in the background, pushing as much as I could. As, as I had done in, uh, in Texas when doing the sit-ins, I was mm -hmm. doing the, uh, during the riots, doing the rights, we couldn't do anything anyway. Not the students weren't that involved. It was it was um, the black students were involved. The white students kept away from it. I must say. Mm -hmm. um, and there's one instance, though. Um, I I told you that I really didn't scare very easily. Uh, I was I knew Cincinnati by by heart in terms of going by car and uh, my shopping center was something like eight miles out of the city um, and one time there were so many uh, diversions that I ended up somewhere I didn't know where I was and this was during the riots 
And I thought, hmm, I couldn't find it on the map where I was. You didn't have a Navi then. Hmm. Um, so there was a gasoline store uh, station and I wanted to go there. And then I saw there was a bulk of young blacks uh, in their late teens, early 20s. And I thought, mm, if I turn around now, they're going to be after me if they see that I'm a white woman. The only thing I can do is go straight at them, walk out of the car, go to them and talk to them. And as a foreigner, you always have the possibility of letting know that you're not an American. And I started to stutter and say, you know, I don't know where I am. Can you help me? And, you know, there was starting to be to get aggressive. And I said, um, I couldn't find it on what do you call this um, card? Oh, no, map is what, it, what it's called. And one of the guys said, yeah, what do you mean? You're not American? I said, no. Yeah, but you speak American. I said, I've been here for five years. Where you come from? Germany. Oh, my brother was in Germany and he had a girlfriend in Germany and he liked it so much. What can we do for you, love? Hmm. So they got in the car. They escorted me back and front until I knew where I was. I was safe. Wonderful. So um, if, if you... If you're nice to people, they're nice to you most of the times. Mm. There, there are instances where I wouldn't test it. But I was lucky. I was lucky. So, um, yes, it involved everybody who traveled or who went uh, from one part of the city to the other. And, of course, we were in Clifton where the university was and there were some riots there. But um, the apartment house where I lived in had very early on opened up to black students and particularly black baseball players. So we were very safe with uh, uh, black baseball players in and around the forum, which was the name of the apartment buildings. And uh, I always, I, I have to retract uh, to mm -hmm. um, as far as not being scared and not uh, having any barrier. Um, my parents, when I came to visit them from America, I came and brought black friends with me. Mm. And they stayed with us and they uh, conversed with my parents and they came back when I was even when while I was still in the States, they came back to visit them. Um, I could always bring in whoever I wanted to. My parents never turned anybody away. And I was I was my two brothers had some friends. Yes, but I was the people catcher. Mm. I uh, I don't know how many times, even during the time I was still living in Germany, I would come and with five or six friends at night. And first thing my mother would say, have you eaten? And she would cook up something, you know, Bratkartoffel or 
whatever was there. Um, and there was always some wine in the cellar in the basement. So, were your parents came. anomalies in this sense? <sighs> yes, I should think so. Uh, maybe 10%. 10%. Okay. And since I I took them for what for what they would do in terms of liber, liberal uh, things, my father alone would not have been that liberal. But together with my mother, and my mother was was fantastic. Basically, and this is what I've never said to my family. Basically, I lived the life she should have should she should have lived. My father was the guy who studied. My mother had to leave school when she was 16. She was a housewife most of her life. And she should have studied and done all the things that and seen all the things that I've seen. So she was she was always beside me, mm. whether no matter where I was. And hence and it those gave me words. a lot of strength. Yeah, hence those words when she left from New York to yes. to make yes. sure that you did what you could. Yes, yes. Now I was, I can only say, and I said that to my niece uh, some time ago. I said, when I'm no longer here, don't anybody cry. I had a good life with all the bitter and the, the sweet and the the interesting and the pain, it was a good life. I had a full life. I had, I think, a much fuller life than they had. And I would have wished for my mother to have had a fuller life. Well, I hope your fuller life continues for many, 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 many years ahead. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, diving back into then into the Cincinnati then. Um, yeah. So at this point in your so, so you after you returned, it took you two years to get your PhD. Is that correct? Uh, no, first um, I came back in. No, when I came back from my okay. mother's funeral, it took me uh, I two years. Yes, okay. I uh, got my degree in seventy uh, five. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and how was it then thereafter getting your your degree? Was it then uh, your status was suddenly then elevated to a higher position within the university? Could you then move forward in no. academia? How was it? No, that's that was the big problem. My uh, doctor mother, she wanted me there. She wanted me in the department and she even put her job on the line, she said. She told me, uh, but they wouldn't allow the exception because they had a university-wide um, uh, rule. Anybody who got a degree, a major degree from the University of Cincinnati had to leave the university for five years because they said, we don't want incest of ideas. Uh-huh. Again, I was lucky because uh, my doctor mother had contact to the people of the Goethe Institute in New York and in Germany. And they wanted to set up a position at a university where the university would provide the room 
and some small funds, and I was salaried by the Goethe Institute. Okay. And was at the university, had a room there, had some uh, funds there, and my job was to service anything that had to do with German outside of the university or in terms of contact with other universities, like programs that cut across from one university to the other, uh, meaning when uh, a speaker came from Germany and was guided through the Goethe Institute network to give speeches or performances wherever, uh, we were the contact people and we uh, also gave the contacts to our uh, neighboring colleges or universities. So I was, I did a lot of things with the University of Indiana, which was 150 kilometers away. But uh, I also had to travel to certain schools where they had um, the courses that Goethe, of, uh, Goethe Institute offers. Uh, we didn't one person uh, affair like uh, Cincinnati couldn't uh, give courses in according to the Goethe Institute method. Um, so, but I was in charge of uh, going to the people to the colleges that could and uh, attend their uh, examinations and okay their examinations. Plus, I had, uh, of course, there were quite a number of visitors from Germany coming through Cincinnati now. And then I was in charge of dealing with questions as far as German schools and German uh, associations in and around the area. The tri-state area was the Cincinnati area, which bordered on, on Kentucky and uh, Indiana. And so I had direct contact with all the German associations in Cincinnati, and there were 16. Because it was a German town, and it mm. had uh, influences from 1845, what, uh, 1848, um, till now, basically. Uh, the The associations were there from the 18th century onward. They, their names were something like uh, Bavarian uh, Support Association or Club, uh, Palatinate uh, Support Association or Club, and so on and so forth. Sixteen of them. The one of the largest one was the Germania, but there was an umbrella. Uh, organization which was led by uh, Herr von Riestenberg. Herr von Riestenberg was uh, approached me saying uh, I'm third generation American but at heart I'm German and I still believe in Wotan. And I kind of swallowed and later I heard that he was having everybody under his thumb by showing them his uh, gun collection 
and by walking around only with his uh, Doberman dogs. Mm -hmm. So he was feared. And later I discovered that he had connections to all throughout America and all the German Nazi groups. And uh, it was an international uh, association network where he was also involved. Uh, he was the one who uh, had told me that I couldn't have the two na uh, films on Nazi documentaries uh, shown in Cincinnati at the university. That was mm. Mr. Herr von Ried, Mr. von Riestenberg. Um, so, I mean, this this international Nazi organization. I mean, did, did they come? Did they approach you often, or, or was it just through no, this no, this figurehead? No, they, they didn't dare. They didn't dare. They knew by after two attempts, they knew they couldn't work with me, and they left me in peace. Mm. And there was that one organization called Germania, which was more of a cultural umbrella. And the one who was um, the chief or the boss there, um, he had been, and I had a lot of con lots of conversations with him. He told me he had been an SA, uh, uh, an SS person mm. from Croatia. He, there were quite a number of Nazis of German descent in Croatia. And he said, I was not in the uh, armed part of the SS. And from what we had to do during the time when Hitler used us was uh, we were always sent to the front and we most of my friends have died. He apparently come, came into the States in 47. And um, it's amazing how many Nazis were allowed into the United States, not just the scientists. Mm. And he had really become a, not a liberal, but he had understood what, what had been going on in his country with, with, with his uh, background and he was trying to um, lead a normal life. He wanted to be a German American, which meant halfway liberal. And he he protected me. We had lots of conversations, and he knew where I stood, and I knew where he stood, and what his what his background had been, and where he had come from. So um, I was very grateful to him, which kept me out of trouble. It's amazing, really, the because, I mean, you're talking about essentially your academic career. You're talking about some of your personal relationships. Uh, and, yet, and yet around you is an explosion of politics, of uh, human rights, uh, civil rights, um, you know, fundamental questions of liberty, democracy, um, you know, and these things, it's like Cincinnati comes across as this, this melting pot, potentially, uh, for all of these different, uh, you know, elements within it. Uh, and yet there you are sort of, you know, growing up, la-di-da, to use one of your <laughs> words, um, you know, developing into the person that you later become. Um, I mean, do you, obviously you've drawn 
uh, on the strength that your mother gave you. Uh, but in your later career, you, did you also sort of look back at what you had to live through in Cincinnati uh, and, and use that as a form uh, of, of, of strong foundation for the, the, for the career that you had? The foundations of Cincinnati were my friends. I, was, uh, I had friends who were in the now, Freedom Now, Women's Rights Now movement. I had black and white friends in the civil rights movement, um, close friends. So whatever I could, from my position, do for them, with them, I did. I was not the activist who went on demonstrations because the first demonstration, they, if they picked me up, I would have been thrown out of the country. Um, so because they knew me and they knew how I thought and what I thought, they came to me with questions, what do we do here? How can we get in touch with that person? How, what shall we do? Uh, trying to get uh, support in from the press in Germany, whatever. So I could pull all my experiences together and pass them on. And this has been my life. Many people have kept all the information they got from the outside for themselves because they wanted power. I gave them all back. I spread them all. I still do this today. When friends call me and say, you know, what shall we do? How can we do? Uh, a colleague just uh, called me yesterday and said, you know, I don't know what, how we can help uh, one of our people at the uh, Heinrich Böll House, a Yemeni, Yemenite, who is ill and he's, uh, she's ill and she's being sent from doctor to doctor. And I said, why don't you go to that and that and that doctor? Because I had contact in Cincinnati with his sister. His sister was one who uh, translated for me at one point and she became a um, Bürgermeister, a mayor of part, a mayor of part of the town of of one part of the town, and she introduced me to her brother, who is a doctor in Düren, where the Böllhaus is. You know, so I'm I'm continuously uh, spreading information, and I I still do that with pleasure, and I did it at the time. I tried to help where I can. Yes. It's fascinating because, I mean, some of the experiences that you talk of also, uh, you know, I, I've seen in a much smaller context within the Armenian community in London, where, you know, there were people who were involved with politicians. Um, but if anybody else wanted to talk with these politicians about, you know, Armenian question, international law, um, uh, they had to go through these people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they would. They would never pass on the contact wrong. information. Absolutely. absolutely wrong. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Because once these people were no longer involved, those contacts were gone. Mm -hmm. And it, it was such a short-minded, short-sighted way of doing things. And but you're so right. Is in you know, this concept of power that people have is um, is infuriating, because yes. you ask yourself, what's important. The position or the chair upon which you sit or the success of, uh, you know, of the mission you claim to represent, which is more important. Um, I was always doing it for 
für die Sache. Mm. For the thing we were fighting for, also with pen and writers in prison. Uh, other people were doing it to advance their standing someplace. I don't know where. Um, the thing is that once I had pulled together a huge network of people who worked together, they liked each other, they trusted each other. Once I stepped out, when I when I stopped uh, in that position, uh, it fell apart. So I'm I'm still in touch with these other contacts, and whenever uh, needed, I refer to them and I refer them to others, uh, because it's it's useless to have a position and not use it, or have knowledge and not use it. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, Karin, yeah, it, this yeah. is this is going to be a slightly longer one. So I'm, um, yeah, I think we should probably yeah, pause there, and then we can look at the next time we again after this we'll have a little chat and plan our next session. Um, but then we can look into so the, the the latter years, as it were, uh, of Cincinnati, go into the nitty gritty that you you suggest is uh, is hiding there in your notes, uh, which I'd love to draw out into uh, audio form. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. If indeed. I remember, yes. Um, but yeah, thank you very much again. Um, yeah, as you intimated earlier as well. So this was a, a slightly more painful, uh, or at least uh, yeah, a trip through some painful years for you. So yeah, um, thank you for for doing that. Even though I'm sure it wasn't always easy to talk about some of those items. Well, it's uh, I I made it easy for myself. I I went skipped over them basically just mentioned them i didn't let myself be drawn into the emotion that was yesterday what thinking about what what we were going to talk about today then you know mm. then you go through the emotions no it's it's uh, all of this is fine um if you tell me where i can find the uh broadcast Yes, yes, indeed. Um, so let's close this off. Um, yeah, so all the best. And uh, yeah. Thank I'll you. See. I'm looking forward to next time.